response to the climate and ecological crisis requires heaps of innovation. We need to transform entire industries, reskill the workforce and create new jobs. That's one huge challenge, but one giant opportunity. So how does this affect you and your sector? Content with Purpose partners with professional member associations and trade bodies to delve into the future of their industries, asking the tough questions and showcasing the innovation propelling our net zero ambitions. Subscribe to this podcast to learn how the professionals in those industries are contributing towards our collective efforts to reach net zero and a more sustainable and prosperous future. Leading the Charge, Opportunity in Transition, a podcast series produced by Content with Purpose in partnership with the ECA. Welcome to Leading the Charge, the ECA and Content with Purpose podcast series that delves into how our journey to net zero is transforming the electrotechnical sector. I'm your host, Rob Smith. Now, according to mega accountancy firm PricewaterhouseCoopers in a recent report, no country in the G20 is decarbonizing quickly enough to maintain a safe climate. In fact, the PwC Net Zero Economy Index found that nine out of the 20 major economies are actually showing increases in carbon intensity over the last year. And that progress on decarbonisation is currently falling well short of what's required to limit global warming to one and a half degrees above pre-industrial levels. So that means if the UK really is going to lead the charge on decarbonising globally, we've really got to get on with it. But what will a decarbonised UK look like? What's it going to mean for our homes and our workplaces and our transport? And crucially, do we have enough skilled people available to help us make all of those changes happen at all? Well, to help answer some of those questions, we've asked Luke Osborne to join us, who's the Energy and Emerging Technology Solutions Advisor at the ECA, and David Heitch, who's the Head of Energy, Clean Growth and Infrastructure from Innovate UK. Uh, Luke, if I could turn to you first, give us a bit of an idea, first of all, about what you actually do at the ECA. Um, I predominantly look after obviously it's the clues in the in the name energy and emerging technologies so i provide guidance and mem- uh, guidance and information to our members on uh, solar pv battery storage uh, electric vehicle charge points all the all the new and exciting tech that's out there that's hopefully going to get us where we need to be by net uh, well to reach our net zero carbon targets in 2050 right okay great so give us a bit of a context then how from your perspective are we actually doing it depends what you base it against, to be honest. Uh, we have, or we, the UK, um, has some really good headline figures on how far we've come since 1990 on uh, decarbonising our uh, our systems. But really, that was um, more for economic reasons. We, we suddenly found a, a load of North Sea gas and were able to switch out most of our coal-fired power stations. And... Uh, yeah, that, that that was an easy win. But, uh, I mean, gas is far from green. It was just greener than burning coal. But we've still got a long way to go. We've got uh, a lot of work to do. We've got 28 years, less than 28 years, to uh, to do everything. And I think 80% of the work needs to be done within the next nine years. All right, so there's a colossal challenge ahead. So, David, let's bring you into it now. You're Head of Energy, Clean Growth and Infrastructure from Innovate UK. So for those of us who are less than familiar what Innovate UK actually is, what, what do you actually do and what's the organisation all about? Thanks, Rob. So uh, Innovate UK is the government's innovation agency. 
and its goal is to bring about economic growth uh, by stimulating and supporting business-led innovation. So we help businesses to develop and commercialise their innovative products and services. My role at Innovate UK is to lead the team that supports innovators across the energy sectors uh, and to help decide how we best deliver that support. Okay, so if you could give us a bit of context then on this, uh, the journey to a, a decarbonised UK, what does that actually mean? We, we've got to change an awful lot of stuff, haven't we? And we really want to, to take a look at the power generation and the way that people can actually consume that power. There's sort of two halves of the question, aren't there? Yeah, I think it's it's well known now that government set a legal target for the UK to reach net zero by 2050, and that's net zero emissions across the economy. Um, certain areas are more progressed than other areas. Uh, the, the power system has been quite a focus for some time about decarbonisation. It was one of the largest emitting sectors until recently, um, but it has come a long way since the, the baseline of, of 1990, and it's now seen as one of the easier areas to tackle, meaning that uh, the target for the power system to be decarbonised is is completely by 2035. So there's a lot to do in a very short space of time. And what that means in, in practice is, in terms of the generation mix, is that there are key decisions needed to be made on new nuclear build. Um, and we're expecting uh, at least a fourfold increase in the, uh, the level of offshore wind that will be on the system. So by 2020, we had 10 gigawatts, and by 2030, we'll have 40 gigawatts or, or more. Uh, there are, of course, a whole mix of other solutions, in, including other renewables, solar, marine energy, uh, the use of carbon capture and storage for our fossil fuel generating plants. But primarily, we're expecting it to come from nuclear and, and offshore wind. Uh, there's also a target for five gigawatts of hydrogen supply by 2030. Um, and, and just to give some context of that, uh, according to the Committee for Climate Change, that's a, equivalent to roughly 42 terawatt hours, which is about equivalent to 15% of the UK's annual electricity demand today. All right. OK, so we're looking at some pretty radical shifts that are going to go on. Um, I think it's probably fair to say that people have been disappointed with the way that governments over the last 15 years have strategically thought about all of this stuff. Uh, are, we, are we confident that we've got a bit more of a strategic plan right from the top to allow it all to happen? I'd say no, to be honest. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a shame. It's, obviously, we have the, the new um, commitment in, or the commitment in 2050, uh, in 2019 for this 2050 target. And um, we're still not very far ahead on it. Um, they, there's lots of discussions. There's a lot of working groups looking at different things. And I think there's a lot of duplicity going on, uh, potentially, and not enough. Uh, there, there, there's key targets, but not the mechanisms on how we're going to get there for, for much of this. Um, and you've got to get the public on board to give them the confidence that uh, this is the, the full direction. And that will also give the contractors and the companies the, the confidence to invest in the skills training and infrastructure they may need to, to be able to deliver some of this so yeah there's some issues there aren't there and this is this really gets to the heart of the matter that we're talking about wanting to make changes but people not quite being clear exactly what those changes are going to be yet and therefore how do you upskill all the workers all the ECA members who are going to be making those changes to actually get them into make them happen so david i'll throw that huge ball to you for a moment how do you upskill the workforce well uh, one of the one of the things that um 
we see as a real uh, opportunity. I, I mentioned there's a lot of offshore wind going onto the system. Um, is oil and gas, and and there's a lot of skills there that are are really transferable because it's working offshore, working in hostile environments, um, and the the oil companies do need to transfer to something greener. So it's a really good chance for them to transfer some of the skills and capabilities they've got into a newer market. Um, but what we hear from industry uh, a lot of the time is we need skills, we need people with capabilities, and uh, that is across lots of sectors. So there's a lot of competition for those people at the moment. Uh, so that it, it is a challenge, certainly. So it's a real bottleneck for you then, Luke? Um Yes and no. I mean, there's three cohorts um, of people that are going to be able to do the work. So you've got the existing, uh, the existing electrical workforce, um, which will need an element of upskilling for the new technologies. And we're seeing a, a huge increase in our membership actually creating eco divisions of their companies and actively taking on this work because they're just inundated with demands. You've got the, um, the transitional workforce, like David just mentioned there. Uh, so they can go through experienced worker pathways um, for the transferable skills to be able to do this. And then also there's the next generation um, bringing them into this industry. Uh, we already know the electrical apprenticeships are overly subscribed, so you don't need to entice them too much. Um, and what, what, one of the main reasons they're coming in now is because they see the electrical sector as a, as a key way of facilitating the, the drive to net zero. It's not just cables and sockets, it's all the, the smart programming, the generation, the battery storage, all the exciting bits that are in there as well. Um, but it's solving those pinch points of enticing employers to take on uh, more apprentices and also having good, credible, quality training accessible geographically across the UK. But there are nonetheless. I mean, there's there's huge opportunities there, aren't there? It, since we're going to be basically switching everything to yeah. electrical power over the next 30 years... This is a great chance for anybody who's in the electrotechnical industry to really grab hold of it. Oh, yeah, they're, they're seeing considerable gains. And uh, it's one of those things, the, the earlier they get into it, the, the, the more they're going to benefit, not, not just themselves and their companies, but uh, if you look holistically across the, uh, the improvements they can do to the UK, um, there's that to be taken into account as well. Leading the charge, opportunity in transition. This episode is sponsored by TNEI and DCC. TNEI is a specialist energy consultancy leading the energy industry into a low carbon future. DCC connect homes and businesses to a single, secure smart metering network. Learn more about how they are leading the charge towards a more sustainable future on our digital series website, leadingthecharge.eca.co.uk. Leading the charge, opportunity in transition. Well, let's get into some of the nuts and bolts of things then. Grid capacity. Let's talk about that for a moment. Have we got enough capacity in the system to make these changes yet? Luke? It depends who you talk to. Um, there's, there was, I can't remember who mentioned it last week, said we're not seeing enough constraints on the system. Um, constraints being like blockers for people connecting. Um, so therefore, their view was that uh, we're not installing enough. We need to be able to get to that point where everything's getting constrained but then you speak to others and they're seeing six to ten year um, delays on being able to connect into um, into their electricity system so 
We do. I think um, Dave mentioned earlier, we've got such an aging electricity network, an old centralised system that was set up decades ago. And whilst it is smart to a degree at the upper levels, um, at the lower levels where you need to connect stuff up, uh, particularly on the small scale generation, there's lots of pinch points because the, the transformers that are actually out there often need manual adjust, manual adjustment in order to be able to uh, facilitate the changes in voltages that are then getting put onto the network. Um, and obviously you, you've got tens, if not hundreds of thousands of these small transformers. And uh, if, they, <clears throat> if they all need manually adjusting, that's going to be very difficult. So yeah, automation process of um, changing these over just to facilitate these smaller connections. Um, so yeah, in summary, uh, I, a little bit too wordy. Uh, in summary, yeah, in some locations, yeah, there's there's enough capacity to to add on to uh, the networks, but uh, others do need uh, considerable upgrades. So I mean, David, from from your perspective, Innovate UK, obviously, it's the government body that's kind of taking a, a broad look at all these kind of things. Is there enough joined up thinking across the board to make sure that if we're going to change everything over to electricity, that we can make all these legal nuggety changes to get us to where we need to be uh, so um we, certainly we're trying to do that you know, there's a lot of activity going on across different government departments uh, and one of the things that we're really conscious of is trying to join that all up and make sure that it's aligned um, we have a big program working alongside off gem so the uh, electricity markets and gas markets regulator um which is their innovation program about how we improve the networks um, and, and how we get all of these new innovations and, and new things onto the system uh, in the best way possible. Innovate UK also um, funds the Energy Systems Catapult, which really supports this whole systems thinking um, way of doing things in that it, it only works if the whole system comes together, and that's not just the power system or the gas systems. It's, it's everything, the mobility, the, the heat that goes into, into all of that. Uh, and that is really difficult because you have to have an owner of uh, a, a, a systems architect that looks across the whole piece, and there isn't a natural fit for anyone to do that. So government is trying to take that role. Um, but yes, it is something that we're definitely trying to think about. Okay, so Luke, I understand you you went to quite an interesting conference in Helsinki earlier in the year, uh, the Europe On conference, and we're looking at I think you know some of those exact questions, but not just in the UK with partners across Europe. Were they coming up with any kind of solutions there? Have you got any hope that we're going to be able to find some answers to these really quite difficult technical problems? Uh, yeah, obviously, collective thinking kind of helps, uh, and um, every country is facing similar similar issues. Obviously, France is a slightly different setup because they have a, a huge nuclear capability to take care of their base load, although 50% of that is offline at the moment, which isn't going to be good for uh, for the winter. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, Finland, they're, they're adding, uh, uh, they've just opened a new nuclear uh, station to their fleet. They're also pursuing a, a huge amount of uh, renewables across all the European nations. They have their um, Repower EU program which is seeing um, a huge amount of deployment of solar and wind and uh, adding in flexibility to the systems because flexibility is one of the key things that or yeah an essential thing that's going to get us where we need to be so whether that's a grid grid attached storage or utilizing the the energy in the millions of electric vehicles that are going to be connected into our networks 
Um, you've got a huge amount of uh, massive batteries on wheels that are sat there for 90% of the time doing nothing. So the, the vehicle to screen, the vehicle to home programs um, are going to be a, a essential and, and help to provide a, a significant buffer for the uh, energy systems. Because I think this is one of the things, isn't it, that there's got to be such a, a, a shift in people's thought processes right the way through the system. Um, and one of the things that I think you were taken to on that Helsinki programme was a, a smart shopping centre. So we're going to bring the whole concept of prosumers into it now. This shopping centre is actually generating electricity, storing electricity. Sometimes it's putting back into the network, sometimes it's taking out. It's a completely different concept of how to build an electrical structure for a, a building. Yeah, yeah, and this is now even a, a new chapter in uh, the wiring regulation. So, Chapter eighty two. This um, came into the regulations in March this year, um, and it just it just starts to highlight that information to the end user, not to the end user, to the installer and the designer, on having that fle flexibility. Whether it's energy within one building, uh, creating its own generated energy, storing its own energy as well as satisfying all its loads, or whether it's a collection of buildings which are all intertrading uh, the energy with each other. Say someone in, in one house, they're out all day where, where their house is generating loads, they fill their battery up and it's exporting to the grid for minimal pence uh, return. They'd be better off uh, sending it to Mrs. Miggins next door who's doing all the, all the washing, the, the, um, the, all the kids are home. They've got a very active household at that point and so that needs more energy and it's cheaper. Uh, if there's excess next door to to import that, there's lots of clever mechanisms there: virtual power uh, virtual power plants and aggregated systems. And yeah, that that prosumer is is essential for where we're going to go, and it's it's really exciting. It is exciting, David. Are you are you excited about these changes that we're we're going to have to undertake? Oh, of course, we get very excited by change because change means opportunity, and opportunity means. Uh, potential for businesses to you know, make some money, which comes back to the economy, which is what we're all about. Um, we, we've certainly been supporting things like that. We have uh, something called the Advanced um, Building Centre, the ABC, and that's been looking at exactly those things about how buildings become not just users of the uh, the energy systems, but part of the energy systems and how that would all integrate and um, what technologies make sense and those are those are hard technologies that go into the building but also the soft technologies about how you manage all that supply and demand as well okay so there's there's lots of sort of little circular loops that will keep going background because once again to make the exciting technologies go in you've got to have supply chains that work to be able to get the stuff in and into the country in the first place uh, and to be able to get all the minerals and materials and things that you need to be able to build these new technologies and you need to have the staff who can be trained up to actually install them and you need the public to understand that they exist and actually buy into the idea of fitting them. So there's a huge body of work to be done in quite short order, isn't there, to try and join those those separate elements up? Indeed, yes. And, you know, there's those elements that you talk about are right across uh, things. So it's, it's not just about how people use power and, and, and heat. It's about how people eat and how they travel and um, the decisions they make and investments in their homes. So all of those things have to be tied up right across uh, the economy, right across different government departments when they're supporting those types of things. And we, and we really do try to, to pull all of that together. Are you 
kind of giving advice to electrical contractors about the kinds of directions that you think they should be going in? Because we hear for, on the domestic side of things, we hear about uh, air source and ground source heat pumps, and we hear about uh, photovoltaics, and we hear about EV chargers and those kind of things. Um, is there a, a kind of a, a route, a preferred route that you as the government organisation want the electrical industries to go around, or is it just a free-for-all? Yeah, we don't we don't provide advice on that sort of thing um, because uh, we don't support any one particular technology over another. We tend to follow policy direction, and until that's set clearly, then uh, then we don't try and drive one or the other. What what is important is that the market comes forward with the the winning technology, if you like, or more than likely, there won't be one winning technology. There will be several technologies that, that that people adopt in the same way now that you know you most people have got gas boilers, but there are people on coal fire and oil burning boilers and that sort of thing. We will need those skills in different areas, whether that is heat pumps or hydrogen boilers or you know whatever the, we're talking about in a particular area. So, Luke, from your perspective, then, as the ECA, is that? Uh, helpful to to not have a sort of a specific direction you're being pushed in or or would you rather that there was a bit more of a nudge to say this is the way that we want to go i think it's probably more beneficial not to be guided in one singular direction because you do need to have that um, technologically agnostic approach um, in order to maximize the skill set you can then maximize the, the workforce that's out there you can have plumbers uh, doing the, the side of things that they need to do. So the majority of, of uh, uh, the heat pumps that the that bays are pursuing uh, are wet systems, so water, air to water heat pumps. And that's predominantly plumbing based, but it obviously has a significant um, electrical considerations with the connection and some of the control gear. But on the other side of the heat pumps, you've got air to air, uh, which are quicker to deploy, cheaper, probably has le- have less embedded carbon within their manufacture and their, and their usage. They could be installed uh, by an electrical workforce with just um, upskilling for F-gas. Um, you've got direct electrification of heating, so smart, smart electrical storage systems that can help balance the grid so they can store up on cheap energy overnight, um, as well as a whole other different, uh, there's, there's a whole range of technologies out there that can be used. And um, those are all sort of like good to go out the box now. Yeah, nearly everything we've got to get us where we need to be for net zero carbon 2050, we have. We don't have to wait for the development of hydrogen, which is quite spurious in most of its claims on the the, the clean and greenness um, and also the ability to supply the heating uh, for the majority of the, the homes in the UK. Um, and one of the main issues with that is the carbon capture and storage and whether it's better using electricity directly. You have everything else, all the technologies are there and they're going to increase uh, by in- economies of scale to, to come down in cost. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I'm confident we have everything we need to get there. All right. Well, that's that's encouraging. That's a good place to for us to, to be in, that we've, we've got a good starting point in those terms. So, Luke, let's return back to the, the, the training side of things again, because in terms of getting the, the, the right bodies in the right places to do stuff, there, there's a colossal number of different directions people could point their careers in, aren't there? That when we're talking about changing away from gas-fired, all sorts of appliances to electrical ones, that's one tranche of it. But then you've got, um, for instance, EV charging points for, for vehicles, which is a much more 
specific market that people can train to go into? Uh, yeah, I wouldn't train to go into that. that it's, it's just a radial circuit at the end of the day. So it's the core function of an electrician, really, who's just had the additional uh, additional um, upskilling training on the nuances uh, that are involved with that. Um, but yeah, it's not a specific career path. That's just an element of the role of an electrician. Right. Okay. So one of the things that I was uh, looking at was to do with understanding the fire risks that come with putting EV charges into covered car parks, for instance, that there has to be a thought process around what happens when you have a lot of electric vehicles in the same space together, making sure that they don't overheat and the, the safety around that. There has to be an awful lot of joined up thinking as we're going through this process to actually get different sectors, not just within the electric industry, but within architecture, building practice, all of those, the whole built environment has really got to think about this thing in a completely different way. Well, exactly. I mean, it, it does pose a potential risk. Um, but I guess if you've got hundreds of metal boxes full of flammable liquids in a car park, that's also a considered risk. But then that's been with us for a long time. So that that's been well understood, managed and, and systems have been put in place. The same things are developing with different fire services and the City of London or various different cities are, are looking at um, how they should uh, apply safety regulations, uh, whether they need uh, specific um, sprinkler systems and automatic disconnection um, for, for the electrical supply to these things. Um, I mean, they're not new technologies, but the scale of evolution and the scale of adoption is obviously forcing people and companies and insurance companies to, to minimise the risks and to provide enough protection. So that is still an evolving, um, an evolving area, um, but yeah, not unsurmountable. Okay, so David, you're taking quite a sort of broad helicopter view of all these these changes at Innovate UK. Are you are you confident that we are heading in the right direction? Are we going to actually be able to do this? Absolutely confident we're heading in the right direction. All the all the noises we're getting out of uh, policy is picking up momentum. It comes back to one of the questions you asked earlier, where um, is there enough? Probably not, but but it's definitely picking up and going um, in the right direction. And we we see those businesses out there with fantastic ideas all the time, and and far more ideas than we can ever su support. Uh, so I'm confident we can do it. The challenge, of course, is the time we have available to do it in. And are there any particular projects or things you've seen that are really lighting you up and thinking that's exciting? I'm glad that's happening. I think we see some some really interesting ideas in secondary markets and i know maybe that's not what we're talking talking about here but but for example um we've done quite a bit of work uh on uh offshore wind um operations so that the, the big sexy stuff is is the turbine when it goes in but actually we're seeing some real exciting innovation in uh, how do we operate these wind farms in a safer, uh, an easier, cheaper way? And we get um, robotics, aut um, autonomous uh, systems, artificial intelligence that are, that are going to be out there and taking people away from having to stand in these environments. So things like that really get me going. Uh, it's probably a, a personal uh, preference rather than a, an innovate perspective. But I, I like to see those kind of secondary markets building because I think when you're building a secondary market, it shows that the the whole 
uh, market is going in the right direction. Okay, Luke, you were sort of nodding thoughtfully as as David was saying that. What, what, what are you thinking? Yeah, no, it's really reassuring when you, when you're seeing that secondary area develop because, like David said, you, you know that it, it's not mature, but it, it's it's standing on on its own two feet, and there's confidence uh, from other people to get involved in the not just the supply chain, but the the other aspects that are supporting it. Um, so yeah, I, I, and that that's one of the key things that I think is important for people to to remember that even though we may not have such clear confidence and direction from our governments on what's happening, I think there's enough momentum and surety within industry itself that this is the direction. And the public's already bought into these systems. There's very little climate change deniers out there, and I think everyone has more of an awareness that they need to play their part in this. So, yeah. Hopefully we, the government will lead a, a bit better and provide a bit more clarity, direction, funding where needed. But yeah, I think there's, there's enough of momentum with this locomotive to keep on going. Yes, it's, a, it's almost as if the public is giving government permission to make these changes so that they can actually make the regulations that people want. Yeah. Kind of that. OK, so what then, both of you, I'll ask this to, what would be your kind of um, key takeaway on the subject of, of decarbonising power, you know, what, uh, particularly in terms of energy, energy generation and management, what would you like our audience to leave with a sort of one big thought over? So, uh, David, perhaps if I could throw that to you first. I think it's that there's, there's no one solution to all of this. Um, we're, we're moving away from quite a, a centralised system to a decentralised system. Uh, and there's going to be a mix of technologies and solutions that will be appropriate, and they may vary regionally or geographically. Um, but we believe that this huge transition uh, that the energy system faces brings about that opportunity, and businesses who can invest in that and be adaptable to that uh, can really thrive in, in new growing markets. And Luke, what's the sort of like the big idea that you want your ECA members to to take away from this conversation? Well, low carbon and energy efficiency isn't a tough sell anymore. Um, it's not niche. It's, it's becoming more mainstream, and they're not only offering the the solution to the major problems of climate change, but they're also a great um, great great mechanism for for that company and for uh, for. The, the end user they're selling to. Um, the technologies are here, they're developed. You don't have to uh, go scratching around for that next innovation. And uh, really they need to become that, that company that is the source of truth for the customer. You, they wanna be that one-stop shop who understands the interaction and the integration of these technologies. So there's lots of good, uh, positive, hopeful stuff out there and a, <laughs> massive opportunities for people to take advantage of. Huge. Indeed. Huge. Well, I mean, once again, it's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you both gentlemen for, for being with us. Uh, I always leave these uh, these conversations really, really kind of charged up, if you'll forgive the phrase, because it's so easy to get caught up in the, the doom and gloom of headlines, isn't it? When there's actually a colossal amount of work going on to, to make all of these vital changes and huge business opportunities for people in the electrotechnical sector literally for years to come. So if we can make all of that happen, it's a real win-win. Gentlemen, both of you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks once again to the sponsors of this episode, TNEI and DCC. You can read, watch and learn more about their work and about the full Leading the Charge series by going to leadingthecharge.eca.co.uk or simply searching for Leading the Charge online.
And don't forget to visit contentwithpurpose.co.uk or find us on social to check out more of our podcast collaborations.